beloved, which means you're loved, beloved by God through Christ Jesus, and beloved by your pastor. It's a joy to worship with you and to proclaim the word of the Lord. If you've been keeping track here, we've been going through Romans, in case you're you know, brand new on the scene, and into Romans 12, and through a couple different sermons here on spiritual gifts, looking at the list of gifts that Paul gave there at the beginning of the chapter, of chapter 12, and then, and then he moves here into verse 9, where he starts to get real practical, and says something like, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. And I was interested because this notion of love that we happen on here is kind of the ruling notion of the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter develops this genuine love. This uh, We'll talk about what that means in a moment. But it follows after a discussion of spiritual gifts. Well, the great love chapter in the Bible, the one we just heard read in our, in our ears, 1 Corinthians 13, is following hard after 1 Corinthians 12, which is another of the same kind of connection of exercising spiritual gifts, but Paul says, I'm going to show you a better way, right? Seek the greater gifts and, and seek the gifts of the Lord and, and seek to exercise them in the body, but I'm going to show you a better way, and that better way is love. Love's the better way. Uh, that doesn't mean don't seek the gifts, but without love, all the giftedness in the world is nothing. Right? Love is what makes these things run, and we'll see that as we come down through the sermon today, that it really is just the love of God. It's God himself who is love, who makes all this go, who gives us love, sheds it abroad in our heart that we should indeed love one another. I wonder if there's a tendency towards selfishness in the receiving of and exercise of gifts. We often, we often receive gifts and somehow act as if like they're kind of part of us. Paul asks, well, what do you have that you haven't received? What is it that you haven't been given by God? Is there something that's yours? Is there something you've brought out of yourself that's not given by God? And of course, the answer is, no, we have nothing that we haven't received. Well, then why you got the big fat head? Right? Why do you think you're better than everybody? Why do you think you have this gift and so you're better than somebody else when the gift is something God gave in the first place? It's not yours. It's given. I think there's something in giftedness that... that tends toward, we, we read, of course, that knowledge puffs up as an example of this sort of thing. If, there, if you have a gift of knowledge and understanding, you can look at other people and think, well, you mouth-breathing rube, why don't you get this? Right? Not really realizing that you're only not a mouth-breathing rube because God gave you the gift of knowledge. And so your, your attitude should be more, thanks God, and how can I give this away? How can I give this to you? How can I benefit you with the gift of knowledge or whatever else, whatever, whatever, what other, what any other gift we have works the same way. That's given to us. We might tend to get a big head. We need to repent of that and realize that love is the better way. And love does something. What does it do? It gives. Love gives. Because we know that about love. And here we are uh, trying to counteract our own pride and hubris and so on with the true reality of love. Not only love coming from us to one another, but in the basis of love coming from God to us in the first place. So as we get here to, and I'll open the Bible to Romans chapter 12, even if you look at it, just the words themselves, starting in verse 9, you'll see that they're fairly terse. 
quick little statements, and it's even crazier in the original because there are like no verbs at all. Um, it just runs down, boom, boom, boom. They're not, they're not even commands, right? They're not, they're not normal imperative sorts of commands, like, okay, love, like, like it comes across in English. Let love be genuine would be like a command, right? a third-person kind of command. Let it be this way, but it's not even that. It's like a statement that has an imperative force. It's a statement of who Christians are in Christ Jesus that has the very same force of now be it. Here's what you are in Christ. Now be it. Live this way. It's kind of that, that sort of way of commanding. And bam, 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 just one after another. And you can read down from verse 9 and on. I had hoped, because Paul does this quickly, right, this is kind of this, uh, I don't know, rapid fire or Gatlin gun sort of like uh, application. is boom, 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 one after another. And, and uh, to, to kind of preach it that way, quite a, kind of a quandary of how to preach a text like this. It's not going to happen like that, at least today. I got stuck. So we're just going to stay in verse 9, which I think is a good place to start slowly and then go quickly maybe through some of those commands as we see how they fall out of or are connected up into this idea of loving genuinely. Right? Let love be genuine. So let's take, a, let's take our, our beginning there, let love be genuine, talk about it, and know that it's the kind of controlling idea of the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter details for us, gives us examples or other other ways in which we are going to be loving, ways in which love would be genuine. And maybe you have some other translations of the word genuine there. Uh, I was talking to someone before the service where I, I keep reading in the older ones, let love be without dissimulation. And I thought, well, that's nice, but I don't think anyone knows what dissimulation is. Uh, so it's not very helpful in that regard. It's a nice word that we don't know. Uh, so let's, let's take the, the measure of that word that some, it positively would be genuine, but literally, the word means without play acting, without acting, uh, without pretense. Okay, let, let love be without acting. We, we, I think when it's said that way, I think we all get exactly what is being said. Yeah, sometimes we, you know, whether in any number of contexts, act all lovey-dovey, you know, like really happy and lovey, but in our hearts, we're not happy and lovey at all. Right? We're putting on a pretense, we're putting on a show, we're acting like we're loving one another, when in reality we're not. In our own hearts, we're not. Uh, or ulterior motives and, th- and things like that as well. Let love be genuine. Let love be without play acting. Let love be without pretense. Let it be genuine. Now, Christian, how do you drum up genuine love? How do you do that? It's, it's one thing to say it, so yeah, we should love should be genuine. Okay, well, how do you do that? How do you love genuinely from the heart? And a better question is, how do you love genuinely from the heart when you don't feel like it? Right? When you, the love isn't there, the feelings, the, the kind of passion of, of loving and giving and those sorts of things aren't there. In fact, I kind of rather have you not here. Maybe altogether, which is where hate always goes. Hate goes to murder, and we have love and hate that are opposites here. Right? Hatred ends up in murder. That's where it goes. Love is to be without dissimulation, without pretense, without falsehood. True love, genuine love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where we exercise this love. Now, we're supposed to love our neighbors. We're supposed to, we just read that this morning, right? Uh, love God, love neighbor. Those are the two commandments and all the prophets hang on them. But right here, the focus is a little more narrow than just love everybody, though that is the, the final thing. It's love the church. It's love the people of God. Let the love in the church of Jesus Christ be genuine. 
without pretense. Thus, bitterness and grudges have no place in the church of Jesus Christ. They have no place in your heart. And if as you look into your heart, you say, yeah, I'm kind of irked at so-and-so. You know, like two years ago, they did this thing to me. Or didn't return my rake. Or whatever whatever it is that, you know, is in our craw. And we can kind of still remember. We kind of still think of the details about that. That's an indication. There's bitterness. There's a grudge in our hearts. And, the, and, and then if we're coming across as lovey-dovey or, you know, in the fellowship of love with this person, but in our hearts we're kind of irked at him, kind of bitter at him, or maybe a whole lot worse than that, you know, really angry at them, we just kind of make a pretense and put on a smiley face. We're disobeying this very fundamental commandment. There's no room for that in the church. If someone took your rake and didn't give it back, you know what you need to do? Go talk to them. Say, hey, you took my rake and didn't give it back. Right? Here, here's the thing. Right? Here, here's an issue. I got this issue. And it may, whatever. You, you never know how that will go. But the reality is this. In Christian love, we should be able to receive those kinds of things and work it out together. When we've hurt each other. Whether we did it on purpose or not. Most of the time, we're not intending to hurt one another in the church. Most of the time. But sometimes we do. And we need to be able to receive that admonition coming back from a brother saying, hey, you said this or you did this, and open-heartedly, warm-heartedly receive that and be reconciled. There is no place for bitterness or grudges in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is rather filled with love, and the word here is agape. Right? This, this love that's the kind of most fulsome word for love. In Greek, and you know the four, maybe at least heard that there are four words in, uh, for love. And, you know, it's not quite the Eskimo for, for snow. they got like 100,000 words for snow or something. Um, but there's at least four words in Greek for love. And this is the Folsom one, right? This, this, uh, this, this love and uh, the, the, well, First Corinthians 13 gives us just a great example. It gives us gives us point by point. What is this love? What's it look like? So flip over there. Keep your figure in Romans, but flip to First Corinthians. And let's look at a couple of these things. And do it in the way that hurts. Because when we, lift, when we lift up our lives and our hearts against what true love is, we find that we don't have it. Or often enough that we don't have it, or just shades of it. So starting in verse 4 there, love is patient. Christian, are you patient? I mean, it's easy to be patient when it's easy. It's hard to be patient when it's hard, right? When someone's irritating or slow or whatever. And that can be something as silly and trite as the guy in front of you driving five miles under the speed limit. That's maybe enough to get you going, particularly if you're late to something. That's definitely enough to get you going. Uh, but those things all need to be brought in and say, wait, 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 wait. We're called to love, particularly love in the church. So if you're following someone in the church and they're going slow, that'd be a good example. Um, but we're to be patient. Is our love patient and kind? Do you find that you envy or boast? There are things that you want that someone has that your, your heart's into and you're, you're, you're wishing you could have. And it's, uh, we, we can talk about envy and covetousness and desire another time. There's a room for desire and things that we don't have in a Christian life, from a good garden hose to a faithful wife to you know, uh, knowledge of biblical languages to you name it. Right? There are all kinds of stuff that we want. And it's okay to want stuff. But we're not to want it in an ungodly way. That's part of the covetousness. And we're not to want ungodly things either. But love is not envious. Just the opposite. Love does not envy. Do we? Love does not boast. Right? Look at what I've done. Look what I've here. Look at me. 
let's look at this guy. We don't need the both, partially because love knows that everything we have, we've been given. So it takes us down a peg to the right spot. It is not arrogant or rude. Well, I'm arrogant and rude enough of the time. I understand that, and I think some of you are as well. Right? See, if we start looking at what love really is, what this agape is, say, oh, man, uh, we're falling short. Every step, every step, we're not there. We're not doing what God calls us to do, which reminds me of the commentary that I read through. Um, it's interesting reading commentaries on little tiny pieces of text because you can get through 20 commentaries pretty quickly because they don't have a lot to talk about, it turns out. But Luther did. Luther always has something to talk about. But his comment here is, as he looks at this text, he says, none of us do this. God commands us to, to love this way, to abhor what's evil, to, to cling to what's good, and we don't. We're not like that by nature. We justify ourselves. We think that whatever I like is good. Whatever I don't like is wicked. And so we like that way, but we don't conform ourselves to the, to the scriptures. And therefore, Christian, we need a Savior. Right? This is the law of God showing us again that we don't measure up. We don't stack up. Our love isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not genuine. It is two-faced. Right? It is play-acting often enough and so on. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Now listen, you who listen to like the Daily Wire and stuff like that, how much, how much rejoicing in wrongdoing do you hear coming out of the mouths of like Matt Walsh or Ben Shapiro? It's like that stock and trade for them, right? Yeah. They want to find the wrongdoing and make much of it. And they rejoice in wrongdoing when it's for the other party. Pay attention to that. Love doesn't do that. Now, Matt Walsh and Shapiro are on their own, we're talking about them. But within the church in particular, which is what this is thrusting toward, we don't rejoice in wrongdoing. We want, we want right doing, we rejoice in that. But love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, though we have an easy time, I think, rejoicing in wrongdoing. But it rejoices in what? A thing that elusive truth we were talking about in the education hour. It rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in that which is true, which ultimately, of course, is God himself and his revelation. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Oh, Christian, love is a high, 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 high standard. Because it really is God's character himself, who God is, and who he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ to be. So, as we find ourselves in need of a Savior, looking at just simply the word love and what it requires of us, let us also know that God has given us that grace. I'll read from Romans chapter 5. You may remember such chapters from Romans as chapter 5. It's been a while. But listen to these verses just at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been forgiven and received through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's forward-looking. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Okay, so God's, God's working this love, right? It's God's love through Christ, by the Spirit, poured into us that we should live it out, that we should live that love. Not that we're perfect, but we rest in the one who is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we love by the power of the Spirit. And I'll just make a note as far as the, the uh, how is the Holy Spirit? Are we immersed here in the Holy Spirit? Is, is the love of God, uh, are we immersed in it by the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit poured out, just like at Pentecost. So just a, a, a note as to mode, that, uh, whether immersion or not is, is something that we should do in the Bible. Certainly pouring out is for the Holy Spirit is poured out, and His love is poured out into us through the Holy Spirit. It's a little note on mode. But the point of all that is it's the love of God through the mediator and by the Spirit, then, that we're called to operate. So pray, Christian. If you find that your love isn't genuine enough, if you find that your love is two-faced, that you're play-acting and acting all lovey to Christians and to the brothers, but you're not really, then Christian, repent. Cry out to God and ask Him that continually shed that love abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So there are two things he gives, as the Apostle Paul, of what agape looks like. What's it consist of here? Okay, let love be not two-faced, not play-acting, but genuine. Okay, well, what's, where's that start, Paul? What do, we, what do we do? And interestingly, the first thing we start with is abhorrence. Right, you get that word in the, in the text there, abhor what is evil. Which is to say, about the strongest word in Greek you can use for hate. There are lots of words for hate, of course. We all, we're all Eskimos when it comes to hate. We have you know, a thousand words for that. Uh, this, this is, um, this is a, a, a particularly intense word for hate, abhor. And so I put in the, in the you know, point two, loathe. Right? That's a word we don't use very often. But uh, to, to loathe something is to hate it with extreme distaste. Right? To abhor something is to... Dislike it vehemently, about that, to dislike it vehemently, to hate it strongly, abhor what is evil. Now, our kitchen's all busted apart, and anyway, you find weird things when you bust things apart, and we're going to them. But it reminds me of any number of times where, you know, I've opened a door. Think, think of yourself in your own kitchen, not my busted up kitchen, I don't know why I brought that up. But anyway, your kitchen is in good shape, and you open the pantry, and rats run out from the floor. you got two or three rats running out. What's your feeling toward those rats? How do you feel about those little guys? Not squirrels. If there were squirrels that ran out, you'd probably not hate them as much. You wouldn't like it, but you wouldn't hate it. You hate those rats. Or better, in Hawaii, for example, you lift up a box and roaches go run in every direction. It makes you want to vomit. Especially if it's like your food. You're like, oh, there's a, re- there's a revulsion. There's a hatred that comes up quite naturally. That's what we're talking about. Do you feel that way about sin? Do I feel that way? Are we revolted by it? Do we hate it and detest it? Do we dislike it vehemently? If any of those words even get at it. This is what the word tells us here. We're to hate, loathe that which is evil. Flip over to Revelation chapter 2. It's an interesting one to bring up. It came to mind uh, as Jesus hating things. And maybe we're sold the false bill of goods that Jesus doesn't hate anybody. And God doesn't hate anybody. Well, we need to read our Bible a little more carefully than that. Um, there are plenty of things that God hates that are detestable and loathworthy to God. 
So in chapter 2 here of Revelation, the first seven verses, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now we're getting close to what we're talking about, loathing and hating evil. And are not, who, and I'm sorry, I got lost my spot here. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, uh, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And here we are. Yet this, I, this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear of the Spirit says to the churches, uh, let him hear. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's that little message there from Jesus to the church of Ephesus, saying, okay, this, these are good things, you've left your first love, and if you don't repent and come back and start leaving the way you lived when you first knew me, I'm going to come and remove your, your mission here. <coughs> but you have this going for you, you hate the works of the Nicol- Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And if you look down at verse um, 15, so you also, this is the church of Pergamum, so you also have some who hold in the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so there's not just the actions of the Nicolaitans, but the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and then, just as a sidestep, we don't have any idea what that was. We don't know what the teachings or the doctrines or, um, or the actions of the Nicolaitans were, so that's not the point. So, but the point is this, Jesus hated it. Jesus hated their works, Jesus hates their doctrine, and he loves the church that hates what he hates. Jesus loves his church, and he's pleased when it hates what he hates. And what he tells us to hate is evil. What he tells us to hate is evil. Evil, as defined by what? My own mind, what I think is evil, what I think is good, some abstraction, uh, you know, that I learned from Immanuel Kant or something else, and say, okay, well, you know, this is evil and that sort of thing. No, 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 none of that. And you can tell, obviously, from the text, without giving definition, that we're appealing to what God says is evil. And what that really amounts to is opposition to and rebellion against God himself and his commandments. Opposition to and rebellion against God and his commandments, that is what is evil, and that is what we are to hate. But it's not just toward God and His commandments, but it's also toward our fellow man. Wickedness has that. Evil has that reality. It's an, it's an affront to God, but it's also a poison to men. It's a poison socially among men as well. Other words we might say are degeneracy, baseness, or viciousness. Sometimes we think of viciousness just as like, you know, so catty and scrapey or something, but that's, which is tied in with vice, which is the opposite of virtue. And so that's, uh, it's a lifestyle that is in rebellion against God, tied up into vice, baseness, and degeneracy. We Christians are to hate such things, to hate those, those works, to hate those doctrines, to hate them, to loathe them, and to detest them. But at the same time, while we're to hate this, these wicked doctrines, uh, 
rebellion against God and against his commandments and, and poison to our neighbors, we're to hate that or also to cling to something else. Now, it doesn't say love, right? The whole thing is love. This is what it is to love God, is to hate evil. All you who love God hate evil, but also cling to what is good. Right? And so we get that put together here of cling to what is good and abhor what is evil. Now, as I look up the word cling, kind of this, and that's one of the things about, about this particular passage, and as we go down, it's just a lot of word studies. I mean, it's digging into word after word and trying to keep all that straight, which isn't necessarily all that easy. But we're to cling to what's good. Well, I thought cling, okay, well, that makes me think of static cling. First thing is like pulling stuff, you know, sock off my, off my pants, uh, which is a good example of clinging. It's stuck there. You rest, you know, your sock's stuck to your pants when you pull them out of the dryer, you know, pull that thing off. Well, it's, it's bound to it, right? Uh, but the one where my mind actually went was more to marriage. So, well, there's that, that word of, of cleave, right, of clinging to one's, um, one spouse, in particular the husband, the, the man is supposed to leave his, his father and mother and hold fast, cling to his wife. Well, it's a related word. It's not the same word. Now, the word here is actually more intense as a kind of a, a prefix that, that intensifies it over the, over the base word, which has the same root, uh, that we find from back in Genesis and into the New Testament of a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife. So, but they're, they're related words. They're related words. It means to join closely to, to cling here, is to join closely to, to bind, to associate with, to come into close contact with. The, word, the basic word means glue. Right? Glue these things, is what it's saying. Right? Adhere them. Affix them to you. Grab onto them. Why? Why grab onto them so hard? Why cling so tightly, Christian, to what's good? Because if you have any notion of what human nature is, including your nature, we don't cling to this stuff. Right? We, tend to, we tend to make excuses about uh, make, you know, clinging to evil things. Not, not hating evil, but clinging to it and rather not clinging to the good. So we're supposed to abhor that which is evil and cling to, hold fast to, be glued to that which is good. Good meaning pertaining at least to the, uh, meeting a higher standard of value of merit. Right. These are the things that are acceptable as, as, as good and, and of, of high merit. But what it really comes down to, of course, is the character of God. Who is God? Who defines what goodness is? He himself is good. Remember the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what, what good work must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's Jesus' response? Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. Okay, well... So we have this absolute goodness of God. But that's exactly what we're talking about. The character of God, as it's manifest in His commandments and in His works, that we would cling and hold fast to that. The character of God and His goodness as it's revealed. And that, of course, has a social reality as well. If, if, we, uh, if we're not abhorring and hating that which is evil, but rather treasuring it and, and living in it, that's going to not only be an affront to God, but it's also going to be poison to our neighbors and ourselves, and just the same dynamics, but the opposite are at play, that if we abhor what is wicked and cling to what is good, that that's going to benefit not only please God, uh, who is our Heavenly Father and has redeemed us, uh, but it will also be a blessing to ourselves and to those around us. It works its way out. The, de- the degeneracy and wickedness of men works its way out, 
and the righteousness of God's people who pursue good and cling to it also works its way out in society. This clinging to what is good is maybe more expansive than what we think. Maybe we think like the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and the only good thing is the Bible. Or something like, you know, something small like that. And the Bible's certainly good. And the world in its fallen form is going to hell, handbasket or otherwise. Um, but there's a lot of goodness that we can find. And let's look at that. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4. This is an important passage. In particular, verses 8 and 9. These, uh, these, are, these verses are typically read to say, Hey, listen, don't do naughty stuff. Do good stuff. Okay? Stay away from the bad stuff. And focus on the good stuff, which is true enough. But notice that there's an expansiveness to the good stuff that we're to be exploring as well. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Okay? Now, we, we, we read that and think of it as a narrowing thing. Okay? We need to find the good, the lovely, and, and these things. But it's, it's like, what's out there? Find it and make much of it. Think about it. Okay? So is there, is there truth and loveliness and, and goodness in Julius Caesar? Well, he's a pagan. He doesn't know Christ. He didn't know the Old Testament. He didn't know anything. So why bother? Because there's some goodness there. There's something for us there. And the mindset here of clinging to what is good is searching for what is good and finding it, knowing that it's there. Even in wicked people, even in a wicked society, that there are good things we can say, that's praiseworthy. We should think on those things. We should make much of those things. Right? Instead of just saying, oh, it's all, it's just paint with one big brush. It's all wicked and evil. Nothing good there. No, that's not how it goes. God hasn't put us in this world that way. Right? There's, there's one who is good and clings to things that are good, finds good things, even in unlikely places and in the midst of unlikely people as well. So what characterizes genuine love in the church? What characterizes genuine love, like not two-faced love, not play-acting love, but genuine love in the church, is that together we hate what is evil and we cling to what is good. As God has defined these things in his own character and through his law and by Jesus Christ, that we hate those things that are wicked and we cling to those things that are good. And that goes from our own individual life and our own struggles with wickedness and sin to our families, to the church, spreads out all of society, that we as Christians hate, detest, and loathe with that, remember the cockroaches and all that, the, with the nastiness. We see how wicked it is. We see how really vicious it is. We see how that sin not only separates us from God, but puts us under His judgment. And that judgment ends in hell, Christian, forever paying for the sins against the Holy God. So when we come against the text like this, we say, well, we don't measure up. So we've got to look for the love, the loathing, and the latching in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the love of God to humanity to redeem us out of his wrath, out of hell, which we deserve. That's the love of God. That's God's eternal love. He sent his son on our behalf. Who and God must loathe sin. God must hate sin so much that in order to save sinners, 
he crushed his own son. His son willingly said, I'll, I'll go to the cross. I'll take the, I'll take the penalty. I'll take the rod. I'll take the chastisement. I'll take the death for you. That you deserve, Christian. So God loathes and hates sin, just like he calls us to. So much that he sacrificed his own son in order to redeem sinners. Christ is the love of God, God who loathes sin, and God then who latches us to himself. God who connects us to himself through Christ Jesus. If we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death and resurrection. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We are the body. He is the head. He will not let you go. He will keep you. He's latched you onto himself into the triune God through his body and his blood, through his cross and empty tomb. All this, the love, the loathing, the latching, that's our part as Christians to live out in the body of Christ, is all founded upon God himself, who loved us, who loathes sin, and who latches onto us through Christ Jesus. We're just being godlike as we're called to here in this text, that we should have our love be genuine, and that we should abhor what is evil, and cling, hold fast to that which is good, Christian. And it's all in Jesus that that comes to us. And that comes to us here at the table, as we focus in on the death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus our Lord. All of the love of God is right there for us. So let's look to Him, seek His grace that we in our lives can appropriate these things and serve Him faithfully loathing and hating what he calls us to loathe and hate, and loving and clinging to the very things that he tells us are good, ultimately himself through Jesus Christ. Amen.